Last week, we started a series called uh, Citizens of Heaven, the Integration of Church and State. And I'm seeking to show the way that our church's stated values of gospel-centered formation and flourishing have great impact on our current political moment. And we started last week by exploring what it's like to address politics from a gospel-centered posture. And, And what I said is that it comes down to professing the good news that Jesus is Lord, which means, of course, that nothing and no one else can be. It places Christ as ultimate and politics falling under that as penultimate. It falls under the authority of Jesus. And if you missed last week, I invite you to go ahead and and stream part of that service, which is found on YouTube. I think there's also a podcast. But the idea is that all Christian engagement with politics must begin with and be sustained by the constant confession of Christ as Lord, or we run the risk of turning politics into idolatry. And this week, we continue with our second value, formation. And I want to frame formation around a simple question, around one particular part of formation, and this is it. Do I have the character to listen well to someone I disagree with? We can expound on that a little bit and say, have I been formed by the Holy Spirit into a person of patience, empathy, curiosity, and humility? Or have I been formed by other forces into a person of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander? Do I have the character to listen well to someone I disagree with? So last week, again, we we began by putting politics in its proper place under the lordship of Jesus. But the, the problem with all potential idols is that they hate staying in their place. The contemporary philosopher James K.A. Smith, he says, quote, the ultimate slash penultimate distinction is not the happy division of labor that we imagine, mostly because the political is not content to remain penultimate, unquote. In other words, as we said, politics wants our allegiance. It wants all of us. I mean, think of a partisan rally or an ad on TV for a political candidate or even the televised debates. Now, while some of these might only show up every four years, they are rituals. And these rituals are robust practices of instilling values and communicating ideas on an affective level. Right? They pull on our heartstrings. They tug at our desires. Now, if you combine that with this strong teleological pull, this strong purpose of life, you have a powerful set of practices that teach us who or what to fear. They teach us who or what to respect. They teach us who our people are. In other words, they form our loves and our loyalties. They shape us 
into a certain kind of people. This is why it's so important to talk about formation when we're talking about politics. And this has always been true of politics. Uh, Social media, on the other hand, has now exacerbated it. A columnist for The Spectator writes this, quote, social media escalates the tensions. It's a hotbed of anonymous trolls, agents of chaos and bad faith arguments. It brings out the worst in us because the algorithm rewards us for being tribal, divisive, and emotional. It preys on our worst instincts. You see, the algorithm doesn't want to be fed compassion, nuance, and reason. Peace isn't profitable. Social media demands the scalps of the canceled. It wants nothing less than our souls and war, she says. The Wall Street Journal as well had a chilling report a few weeks ago that Facebook's own research in 2018 revealed this. They said, quote, our algorithms exploit the human brain's attraction to divisiveness. If left unchecked, Facebook would, quote, feed users more and more divisive content in an effort to gain user attention and increase time on the platform, unquote. So social media, what it does is it further weaponizes the formational power of politics to mold us into people whose hearts are contaminated with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Even still, lest you think that my main argument is just that I hate Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, that's not the case. I mean, social media can't be entirely to blame. You can imagine Jesus speaking his famous words today, out of the overflow of the heart does one tweet. We're trapped in this brokenness of the fall until we give ourselves fully to Jesus in alignment with his kingdom way of living. So then instead of sort of knee-jerk condemnation rooted in judgment, we need to cultivate, model, and teach the practical goodness of restraint, of humble tentativeness, of listening, of seeking first to understand and then to be understood. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have clarity about injustice, about morality, about ethics, or social policy. Not at all. But what it means is that our posture is just as crucial as our positions. The way we hold our positions is as important as the positions we hold. The work of formation is about cooperating with the Holy Spirit in us to become more like Jesus. It's to give Jesus the allegiance of our heart, mind, body, and soul. So before we go into today's text, I just want to give two quick caveats about formation. And the first, which I think we've shown, is that formation is always happening to us. 
we are being formed by all sorts of narratives, beliefs, and loyalties. And therefore, for us to be formed more into the person of Christ, it must be an intentional work. Dallas Willard says, quote, the path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Again, grace is not opposed to effort, which is why Paul says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But it is opposed to earning, which is why in the next verse, Paul says it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purposes. So that's the first caveat. The second is that formation is often painstakingly slow work. Almost all the biblical imagery for spiritual growth is organic growth. Whether that's the slow growth of trees, the timely maturation of fruit, or the unseen growth of a child in the womb, it has to do with these slow, natural processes that take time. That's why Eugene Peterson called it a long obedience in the same direction. So for deep spiritual formation to take place within us, we have to be first off open, intentional, and desirous of it. And secondly, patient to the enduring of the slow work. With all of that, now let's dive into our text today. Let's begin with Peter's vision of formation for political engagement. Now, this is a long text and there's so much in it that speaks to our current cultural moment. So honestly, I I strongly encourage personal study of this and meditation on these words. But today we're just going to skim the surface. I encourage you if you have a Bible or a device to follow along with us. Um, Again, we're in 1 Peter in the beginning of chapter 2. I'll give just a moment if you do want to open that up. Now, Peter begins in verse one with an awareness of the counter formation that the world works on our souls. And he calls for us to live our lives in a particular way. He begins in verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Christian political discourse will look peculiarly civil. And in light of the us versus them toxicity of today, it will stick out like a sore thumb. In the next verse, in verse 2, Peter speaks of the slow work of formation. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So if you've ever experienced the goodness of God, Peter's saying, think back to that moment and let it stir up effective desire in your soul. That desire, that orientation of the will towards God can propel you towards the long and hard work of spiritual growth, towards what Peter calls growing up. And it's important that Peter begins here because if you don't actually want to be like Jesus, 
then any number of spiritual disciplines or practices will just feel like burdens. It will feel like legalism. It will feel like constraints put upon you. Then in verses 3 to 8, he uses this imagery of being built into a temple with this admonition that Christ must be the cornerstone. All spiritual growth rests firmly on the already finished work of Christ on the cross. It begins and is situated upon the reality of the gospel. And then if we continue on to verse 9, Peter says our formation isn't merely individual. No, in fact, he uses this religio-political language. He says we're being formed into a royal priesthood and a holy nation. I mean, look at these two images. Royal, of course, political language. Priesthood, could it be any more religious language? Holy, political language. Nation, I'm sorry, holy, religious language. Nation, political language. God is forming us into a people. You might say a polis or a body politic called the ecclesia, the called out ones. And as the church is being formed, she is to show the world what an entirely different ordering of society looks like. This imagery of the royal priesthood and the holy nation, it's what God had called Israel in Exodus 19 said that she is meant to be a light to the nations. And now Peter is transferring this identity to the church. The church is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven, even in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Now, here's some good news. That the primary way that we're formed communally or corporately is actually when we're in gathered worship. It's in letting this very liturgy that we are in the middle of right now, it's in letting that re-narrate our story as beloved children of God. So the good news is if you're watching this or here with us today, you're already participating in this. Let's continue on. In 11 to 17 of our text, Peter, he sort of expands on this idea. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, or otherwise translated pilgrims, strangers, immigrants, foreigners. The idea is that to them, their primary citizenship is not to Rome. In our case, our primary citizenship is not to America or any country. We are first citizens of heaven. And Peter continues on, we are to, quote, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls. This should hopefully call us to kind of think back to that uh, journalist from The Spectator when she was talking about political discourse on social media. And she said, again, the algorithm doesn't want to be fed compassion, nuance, and reason. Peace isn't profitable. Social media demands the scalps of the canceled. It wants nothing less than our souls and war. And Peter says, these things wage war against your souls. So friends, 
this morning, please do not be tricked into believing that we live on neutral ground, unaffected by the principalities and powers at work to bend our wills inward, our wants self-centered, more concerned with our own rights and freedoms than the love of our neighbor. We do not live in a vacuum. Discipleship in the way of Jesus requires an active restraint against all desires that don't find their source in Christ. Peter says in verse 12 and 15 that our public lives have a God-glorifying and what he says, ignorance-silencing effect on the watching world. Now, we're talking about spiritual formation this morning, and one of the critiques against the spiritual formation movement is that it just creates a bunch of navel gazers, right? They're only concerned about their own spiritual growth. What about social justice? What about living our lives for others? Well, here's the thing. If our own spiritual growth is actually into Christ-likeness, then it will inevitably have an effect on those we interact with. Let's quote N.T. right here. He says, If the vocation of the royal priesthood is to reflect God to the world and the world back to God, the world that is as it was made to be and as by God's grace will be one day, that vocation must be sustained and can only be sustained by serious attention to putting on Christian virtues, not for the sake of a self-centered holiness or pride in one's own moral achievement, but for the sake of revealing to the world who its true God really is. Reflecting God's image means learning the discipline of a God-reflecting human life. From verses 13 on to 17, Peter posits this almost paradoxical position on how to engage in society. He says, be subject to the emperor. Honor him. I mean, these early Christians would feel the weight of this statement. How can we have any freedom if we submit to an emperor who wants our worship? I mean, doesn't this go entirely against what I was saying last week about how the emperor Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is? How are we going to submit to him? Well, Peter answers with this sort of freedom submission dynamic. Verse 16 does a good job explaining it. It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God. When our whole lives are submitted to God as his servants, we can live with a freedom from the forces at war with our own soul, even under the emperor. The question is not really should the church be in the world, but how should the church be in the world? I mean, in terms of what we're talking about today, I think that this dynamic says this. It says that we have to pursue freedom from the formation of the world 
and submission to the formation of the Spirit, all while living in and amongst the people. Realizing and living in this freedom-submission dynamic creates a people who can engage the culture in love. So all of this takes us back to where Peter began, to his litany of sins that hinders our formation. And I want to focus here because it helps narrow down what it means to be formed into the people of God with, again, that opening question. Do I have the character to listen well to someone I disagree with? Have I been formed by the Holy Spirit into a person of patience, empathy, curiosity, and humility? Or have I been formed by the world as a person of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. The formational power of these vices is in their connection to our desire. Which is why Peter says as the sort of corrective to putting away these vices, to long for or to desire pure spiritual milk. I mean, what is malice but a desire to hurt or defame someone? With words or deeds? What is deceit but a desire to gain some advantage or preserve some position by manipulating others? What is hypocrisy but a desire to not be known for what really is? What is envy but a desire for some privilege or benefit that belongs to another with resentment that another has it and you don't? And what is slander? but the desire for revenge and self-enhancement, often driven by the deeper desire to deflect attention from our own failings. See, we might be tempted to think we could get rid of these vices with some sort of behavior modification or if we just tried harder or that somehow we can think our way out of these sins. Maybe if we just read enough about them. The tricky thing about this list is that like all vices, they spring up from a crooked heart, from disordered desires. And this is why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. If it was easy to identify these sins and root them out, we could all just do that right now, go home and be done with it. But Jeremiah, he, he warns again in this famous verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Identifying and rooting out these desires isn't simple or quick work, and it's impossible to do on our own. Do I have the character to listen well to someone I disagree with? Or have I been formed as a person of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander? It might not be as easy to answer this as you first thought. There's this great uh, Jewish Hasidic tale in which a disciple asks the rabbi, why does Torah tell us 
to place these words upon your hearts. Why does it not tell us to place these holy words in our hearts? The rabbi answers, it is because as we are, our hearts are closed and we cannot place the holy words in our hearts. So we place them on top of our hearts and there they stay until one day the heart breaks and the words fall in. The only way to root out unhealthy desire and make room for holy desire is to have an open heart before God. One way to do this is to practice emotionally vulnerable prayer. There's no better teacher for this than Psalm 139. And again, um, we do not have time to go through this whole psalm. Do not worry. I'm not going to preach a whole other sermon on this psalm. But as I uh, sort of encouraged you to do with the first Peter text, I do even more so with Psalm 139. Take this, read it, meditate on it. In fact, if you're looking for like a, a tangible takeaway from this sermon, I'd say pray through Psalm 139 leading up to the election um, as often as you can. Let me just briefly note the structure of Psalm 139 here. About the first three quarters of the psalm, David is praying about the reality of God's ever-present presence. This presence knows us intimately. So while our hearts and desires, uh, you know, might be deceptive and confusing to us, they are searchable and knowable by God. David is actively attentive to this nearness of God, and this allows him to pray in this emotionally vulnerable way. Um, David, he declares his hatred for others in verses 19 through 22. And in many other Psalms, he declares his own lament, his own anger, his own sadness, his own doubt. How many of us put our hatred on the table in our prayers with God? How many of us pray through our anger or our sadness or our doubt or jealousy or despair? Do we bring these things in full honesty and vulnerability before God? Because you see this vulnerability, it leads David to pray in the final two verses of the psalm. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. He's inviting God to open his heart and sort of poke around for the, for the disoriented desires. And then he closes his prayer and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David practices these really three important aspects of all spiritual formation, which is an awareness of God's presence, emotionally vulnerable prayer, and an understanding that his deep interior life could only be accessed with God. As we close, I want to return back to Peter. This time, not to the text, but to the person behind the text, Simon Peter. If you've read the Gospels or heard these stories, you know that Simon Peter, he plays a prominent role. He's often the punchline of what it looks like not to be a good disciple. 
He questions Jesus often, steps out of the boat only to sink. And other times he proudly proclaims the strength of his own faith only to quickly be proven wrong or even referred to by Jesus as Satan. But imagine with me now, try and, try and put yourself in Peter's place as we go through uh, these last moments of Jesus's life. Jesus, after having the final meal with the disciples, he says, they're all going to fall away from him that night. Peter interjects and says, listen, Lord, they might all fall away. I will not. Even if it leads to death, I will not deny you. Then as the chief priests and soldiers come to take Jesus, uh, Peter takes out his sword, chops off one of their ears, only for Jesus to rebuke Peter. If you're familiar with the story, you know that Peter does deny Jesus three times. And after a rooster crows, Peter remembers Jesus warning him of this. And it says he went off and wept bitterly. Peter's heart is broken open and he's confronted with the sickness and deceptiveness of what he finds within it. After Jesus' resurrection, he appears to some of the disciples um, along the shore, and he specifically reaches out to Peter. It says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In other words, how are you doing with the disordered desires of your heart? Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he said, then tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The text says, Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Another word, Peter was wounded. Peter's heart was broken open before God. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Sometimes it takes a question being asked many, many times of us before we get the courage to vulnerably open our heart. And it's only in the presence of God who Peter confesses knows everything about him that we discover the truth of the matter. So perhaps we need to be asking our question this morning in prayer before God. Lord, what in my heart keeps me from listening well to someone I disagree with? Is there malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander within me? Search me. 
Peter opened his heart to the shaping of the Spirit, becoming a person who knew freedom of submission to Christ. His life was so formed by the life of Jesus that even his death took on that form. Most scholars believe that the book of 1 Peter was written around 62 to 63 AD and likely from Rome. It's believed that Peter was martyred a year later in Rome after writing these words under the emperor Nero. Peter was a man who went from using the sword to try and save Jesus' life to willingly submitting his own life to a cross. It's said that Peter was actually crucified upside down, like a mountain reflected upside down in a nearby lake. Peter's life mirrored Christ's even in the shape of death. Peter's life, as powerful and transformed as it was, only reflected back the goodness of the source of all life, Jesus Christ. And in the mystery of the gospel, may the same be so for all of us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.